Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Laksh Tata. This episode is the audio version of a live online session from JLF London at the British Library 2020. Tharoor Rosaurus, Shashi Tharoor in conversation with James Crabtree. There Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this conversation about uh, the Tharorosaurus, uh, the new book from Shashi Tharor, who I'm delighted to have joining me here this evening. I'm in Singapore. Shashi is somewhere in India. He'll tell us where in a new minute. New Delhi. Parliament starts tomorrow. Very good. Um, and, and so his new book is a canter through 53 unusual words from uh, the beginning word, um, Agatha Cacological, through to Zugzwang. Um, by way of all sorts of others that we'll we'll touch on. Um, Shashi, just for those who haven't read this or haven't heard of it, where did it, where did the idea come from? Um, and also <laughs> at the beginning, you you dedicate the book to your father, and you say that your love of words partly began very early in life uh, through him. And I wonder if you'd be kind enough to tell us a little bit about that, and in a sense where everybody knows who you are and your love of language, but but it'd be interesting to hear where this came from personally. Thank you. Well, uh, the, the idea for the book came from the publisher, I have to admit. Meru Gokhale, the uh, publisher of Penguin India, we were on the backseat of a taxi cab in Jaipur heading to the literary festival that's hosting this event. Uh, when she said, listen, you know, I had acquired a bit of notoriety as as people living outside India would not necessarily know uh, for using words that initially I thought were commonplace and turned out to be obscure when I denounced uh, a, a, a rather offensive television journalist as spouting a farrago of distortions, misrepresentations and outright lies. Um, apparently, it sparked such a search for Farago from Indian uh, uh, Twitterati that there were a million searches on the Oxford English Dictionary site prompting the OED to issue a tweet wondering why on earth does it happen? Why were a million Indians wanting to know what Farago meant? And that sort of started, uh, 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 I thought, an undeserved reputation. After all, I'd like to think of myself as somebody who communicates, and the purpose of communication is to be understood. So no one communicates well by using words people can't understand. But once I was saddled with this reputation, it became very difficult to shake off, and I decided to, to play on the joke. So, for example, when I published my book, The Paradoxical Prime Minister, in announcing its release, I didn't just say my book is out. I said, this book is more than just a 500-page exercise in floxy norsi nihilipilification, which was, of course, a way of pulling my own leg uh, and at the same time sparking interest and curiosity in the book, which is precisely the effect it had. So what Meru wanted to do was to capitalize on all of this and, and, and do Therurasaurus, uh, pitching me a book whose title would combine my name, Tharur, with the word Tyrannosaurus, and so many are terrified of difficult words, and thesaurus, since of course people want to be able to look them up. I laughed it off then, it, it, uh, she persisted, and I began to think it might be fun to do after all. 
and this is the result. Uh, and it's, it just came out on the 1st of September in India, uh, but it actually uh, sort of reached the top 10 of the Amazon lists in India uh, just during pre-order stage. There seems to be an amazing amount of curiosity about all this. And the truth is, I'm not a scholar. I'm not a trained linguist. I'm not a philologist. I have no pretension. And I've loved them all my life, and, and it's, it's basically because of my father, which is why I've dedicated the book to him, because he uh, was, was um, obsessed with it. He went to a Malayalam medium village school, uh, went to England at age 19, and essentially, uh, uh, you know, crash coursed his way into becoming proficient in English. Self-taught, I found after his death, notebooks uh, of, of Byron and Shakespeare that he'd copied out in order to get used to the feel and the sounds of the words. Uh, he uh, absolutely um, was obsessed with word games. He played Scrabble. He played bingo. He made up games that kept the whole family busy and distracted on car journeys throughout his life. Um, you know, for example, he would imagine a, a five-letter word, and we had to guess it in 20 tries by coming up with other five-letter words and being told how many letters matched. So we'd be deducing through the letters what the word might be. No definitions given, nothing. It's an extraordinary game, and I would recommend it warmly to others. Anyway, so all of these things, so he delighted in the way in which words could be put together, their origins, the letters of which they're made. He was a Scrabble fanatic, which, by the way, has gone down the family tree as a result of him. I have, he now has a grandson in California who excels at Scrabble. Uh, and all of this meant that, that words became for us a source of pleasure and delight. It, it never was a chore, it never was homework, it was never something we felt we had to study. It was fun, it was entertainment, it was escape. And that love, that, that sort of pleasure, delight, joy in words is something that I hope I've tried to communicate in this rather lighthearted book. Uh, the 52 words are real words and not all of them are, uh, are terribly obscure, but they all have interesting stories around them. So, um, uh, and some, you know, once in a while I, I venture out on a limb that the, I mean, I, I once uh, wrote a piece somewhere that said that uh, I immodestly thought I might have invented the word prepone. And I got a very sweet email from uh, the chief editor, the OED, assuring me that prepone had already been tried out in a letter to an American newspaper editor a century before me. Oh, well, uh, a century ago, which was about 40 years before I thought I'd done it, and so on. But I have stuck my neck out and think that all the word origin buffs have got goon wrong, and that it really comes from the Hindi gunda, and I'm willing to roll up my sleeves and fight with somebody for it. Very good. Well, you've got, you've got 53 words. I, I went through and figured, I think, that about 24 or 25 of them I'd never heard before. So I, I felt like I was batting a pretty poor average. Um, you better tell people what uh, Flocky Nocky needs. Don't feel need, bad. Need means. Sorry, don't, don't feel bad because there's a story told of the uh, notorious Indian nationalist Krishna Menon, who was our first high commissioner in, uh, in, uh, in, in London. And uh, he was complimented some poor unfortunate English woman, uh, you probably know who she is, Bridget Brophy, um, most unfortunately congratulated him on his English, complimented him on his English. And he looked at her and said, Madam, my English is much better than yours. I learned it. You merely picked it up. <laughs> Which I think is essentially the problem the English have. They assume it's their language because they've been speaking it since birth uh, or since they could speak. But, uh, but the rest of us have taken a little more trouble over acquiring it. Now, forgive me, I interrupted you when you were asking a question. Which word did you want me to explain? 
Well, you, you, you use flokinoki nihipilification and you didn't explain what it meant. So I think for our audience, if you're going to use some of these words, you better at least tell people what they mean. Fair enough. Floxinosi nihilipilification was made up by a bunch of undergraduates in the 19th century, I think. It was essentially a way of, of, of taking up a number of letters that have to do with nothingness. And nihil, obviously, is one that most people would realize. And, um, and, and putting them all together to create uh, a, a fake word that then passed into the language and has even been used uh, quite recently in the House of Commons. Um, it essentially means the act of estimating something or someone as worthless. Uh, because if you look at, uh, you know, uh, the, what it's made of, uh, it includes fluxus in Latin, which is a wisp, naukum, which is a trifle, nihilum, which is nothing, pilus is a hair, and fication. So you imagine a, a wisp, a trifle, nothingness, and a hair. Fication will give you will give you um, uh, the longest regular word in the English language, being one letter longer than the traditionally cited anti-disestablishmentarianism. Uh, and so this word, um, I think it was it was Jacob Rees Mogg who used it in the British House of Commons to rail against European Union judges. Uh, I have the exact quote in the book. I'm glad to say, Mr. Deputy Speaker, that the requirement not to be rude about judges applies only to judges in this country. It does not apply to judges in the EU, so let me be rude about them. Let me indulge in the floxy nosy nihilification of EU judges. There you are. So I, uh, let me pick you up on what you said earlier. You, you were talking about the, the, the act of being a politician and the fact that you can't communicate using words that nobody understands. You had an interesting back and forth on Twitter today with Chetan Bhagat, the Indian author, in which you <laughs> praised him for the simplicity of his language. And I, I wonder, how do you sort of manage this tension in your own public life between your love of language and fancy words and the need for a politician to speak plainly? Well, you know, it, it's interesting, James, because uh, very early in my political career, I, I suffered from not speaking uh, very clearly in the sense that uh, uh, early on in Twitter, uh, a journalist of BJP leanings, I might add, and therefore not particularly friendly, uh, reacted to an austerity drive declared by my government with a tweet to me saying, so Mr. Minister, does this mean you will travel in cattle class? Uh, so I replied, since he'd used the phrase, and I knew the phrase having just come to India after 35 years abroad, where it's common usage, as you know, for the, the airlines who herd economy class passengers in like cattle, I replied, yes, in cattle class, out of solidarity with all our holy cows. And believe me, the dung hit the fan. It, it became uh, uh, the front page news of the country for three days as people accused a Congress party minister of being insufferably elitist and disparaging all economy class passengers as cattle. And as you know, the, the expression has nothing to do with disparaging economy class passengers. It has to do with disparaging the airlines. But no one wanted to listen. It got even worse when it was translated into multiple Indian languages and Indian media. And so I realized quickly the wisdom of Shakespeare's old warning way back in, um, way back in, 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 in you know, the end of the 16th century, that the success of a jest lies not in the tongue of the teller, but in the ear of the hearer. That is, don't use words, however good and noble your intentions might be, don't use words that people might misunderstand. And in politics particularly, people are all too willing to misunderstand because others will actually stir them up to do so. So I learned a, a very hard lesson that way. 
politically in my own constituency in Kerala, I campaign in Malayalam and my Malayalam is much more rudimentary than my English. And therefore, I, 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 I don't end up having to say things that are too difficult for my voters to understand. In fact, usually I say things so simple that even a child can understand, which is why it's a pity for me that children don't have the vote because I might actually win uh, even more <laughs> large, handsome majorities in Tiruvannathapuram if children could vote. But jokes apart. Um, the tension, therefore, is not a political tension and that politically I'm careful to choose very simple, clear words. It's a fact that I also have this other life as a writer or Sanjay. Sanjoy called me at the beginning a public intellectual, whatever that means. And therefore, I do write and, and books, articles, columns, uh, expressing opinions in writing. And when I am expressing my opinions, I choose the words that I consider most appropriate for them. And they may not always be the easiest words for people to understand. Anyway, today, Chetan Bhagat, who is the opposite of me, he's often held up and cited as somebody. If Shashi Tharoor is seen as difficult to read, Chetan Bhagat is easy to read. Chetan uh, is a friend of mine. He openly says that he is happy to write books in English for people who don't know English very well, uh, small town people who are uh, for whom English is a second language, who, who read English uh, really for aspirational reasons. But he has a good story to tell and they buy his books. He, he's a best-selling writer. His books are only published in paperback. There's no hardback, Bhagat, uh, because they go straight into a, into a million copies uh, because he, uh, he, he, he writes for people in parts of, uh, parts of the country who, who are not used uh, or not welcoming of my kind of English. And that's, that's an entirely legitimate thing for him to do. But he then branched out a few years ago into writing a weekly opinion column. Uh, for a while, he seemed to have drunk the Modi Kool-Aid. And so uh, many of us on my side of the political aisle, the more liberal side, as we'd call ourselves, um, were obviously critical of much of what he had to say. But his merit he always had was he expressed himself with great clarity and simplicity. I mean, literally, somebody for whom English is not their first language would have no difficulty understanding what Chetan is saying and the terms in which he's expressing it. There are no great complexities in his ideas. He describes things with very simple, homely analogies, very simple language. And today he wrote a column. I think he's finally recovered from his Modi infatuation. Uh, and, he, and without attacking uh, the Modi government, he actually attacked a number of the failings of that government in terms of their decisions on economic policy, on the management of the coronavirus, on their destruction of social cohesion in a famously diverse society by promulgating religious hatred. And he did so in very simple, no-nonsense language. You can imagine him saying this to you in a living room conversation. And so I wrote praising him and, and telling him that I, I was actually uh, very impressed by this column. I, I didn't tell him, I told, I told the readers, I said, a superb piece by Chetan Bhagat on all that ails our country and what we should do about it. And then I went on to say, Chetan's great virtue is the simplicity and directness of his writing. His message is clear and I hope his fans in the government act on it. Now, to my surprise, Chetan then reacted with gushing uh, joy at being praised um, by me, and, and it, it wasn't sarcastic. He, he actually uh, was very, 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 very touched. He actually wrote to me uh, privately as well to tell me how grateful he was. Um, and then he issued another tweet saying, okay, I still can't get over this. There Shashi Tharoor has praised Chetan Bhagat, I'm floating. And then he added mischievously, just one request, sir. Next time, can you use some big words to praise me like the ones only you can do? Superb is nice, but a big one would really make my day. So that uh, was really an invitation I could not resist. And so I replied, 
Sure, Chetan Bhagat, it's clear you're not sesquipedalian, nor given to rhodomontade. Your ideas are unembellished with tortuous convolutions and expressed without ostentation. I appreciate the limpid perspicacity of today's column. I mean, it was obviously tongue firmly in cheek, James, and you fully realize that. But um, in the in the two hours since that tweet was issued, it has had uh, nearly 30,000 likes on Twitter and it's been retweeted 7,000 times and three and a half thousand people have replied to it. And I'm just going, oh, my God, you know, but there we are. I was just having a good time. So you, you, since you're talking about politics, let's talk about politics for a minute. In the words that you've chosen, so your 53 words, there's a bunch that are more commonly used that, that in a sense reflect the, the spirit of the political times in India. So you have troll, vigilante, curfew. You also accuse um, Mr. Modi of running a kakistocracy, which you'd better explain. Sure. I suppose I wondered if you could reflect a minute on what the ascendancy of the BJP and Mr. Modi mean for the politics of the English language in India, and, and in a sense, whether the whether English as a medium of communication is becoming uh, less central to Indian public life, as you have the rise of the, the kind of Hindi-speaking Hindu nationalism um, across the country. Well, that's a very, very fair question, James, because English was always a minority language in India. Um, and at the same time, it was the language that set the national political agenda. In other words, the more important debates in parliament were in English, the major, major newspapers that actually laid out political discourse in this country are English language newspapers, are the major television channels on which politicians appeared were English language television channels. And all of these essentially um, occurred, it seems to me, despite the fact that they were only aiming at a very small section of society. And it was justified, I would say, on two grounds. Um, the less important is the fact that, in fact, in every society, a small minority really is very interested in politics and focuses on that. And therefore, uh, that minority in India uh, that's English speaking is, is a smaller, uh, uh, it's not as small a minority when you put them against the minority of those interested in political ideas and issues. But the more important issue is that, of course, the merit English has in India is that it's understood everywhere. It's understood by few people everywhere, but it's understood everywhere. Uh, and as a result, it doesn't divide the nation linguistically. Uh, a political argument made by, say, a Tamil-speaking finance minister in English resonates um, in, in, in Hindi-speaking North India as well, uh, and, and a stirring speech as happened, for example, after 26-11, when we had the horrible Mumbai attack, the prime minister addressed the nation. His mother tongue is Punjabi. He was educated in Urdu. He spoke to the nation in English. So that sort of thing was uh, the, the contradiction inherent in the use of English in Indian politics until um, the Modi government's ascendancy in the last six years, which has transformed the idiom of, of politics. First of all, because the Modi government um, is a populist government. They want to show the world that they represent, uh, if you like, uh, a, a section of the populace that is not particularly comfortable in the English language. Mr. Modi himself is not comfortable in English and prefers to express himself in Hindi. And of course, in his home state, in his mother tongue, Gujarati, but otherwise in Hindi. Um, most of his ministers uh, not only speak Hindi, uh, as, as their language of choice, but in something that's unprecedented in terms of Indian parliamentary convention, most of them reply to questions asked in English in Hindi.
which um, I mean, there was a there was an unwritten convention for 70 odd years that if a, 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 an MP, particularly one from the southern part of India, where uh, Hindi is not just unfamiliar, but in some parts even anathema, uh, were to speak in English, you owe him the courtesy of a reply in English. And uh, and and it so happens that ministers have stopped feeling they are bothered about that today. So that is also a change. Then you've got the situation, James, where um, the uh, population has also grown dramatically in Hindi-speaking India, uh, and and less so in, in non-Hindi-speaking India. The South is actually witnessing a gradual decline in population, and certainly in relation to the North, it's a complete decline. So the result is that the dominance of Hindi as the language of political discourse is now more and more entrenched. It is said, for example, that you cannot be a successful politician in India, cannot be prime minister of India, cannot be a, a, a leader of the opposition without being able to make fluent demotic speeches in Hindi uh, to mass audiences and, and mobilize voters and support in the Hindi speaking part of the country. It is also said that um, the, 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 the votes of the Hindi speakers will now determine the future of India. And to compound all of this, the BJP represents an ideology often summed up in the phrase Hindi, Hindutva, Hindustan. They, they, they see a monolithic India, one India, uh, one language, one nationhood, and one religious identity, and they do seem to want to thrust that upon a society that has been astonishingly diverse. So all of this comes in to a, a proper answer to your question, because this emphasis on uniformity and conformity, rather than unity and consensus, which were very different faces of the same impulsion for unity. This is very much driving divides into our society. So my using English is not just the fact that I'm a Southern politician who happens to be more comfortable in English anyway than in Hindi, though I can, unlike many of my Southern MPs, I can speak Hindi reasonably fluently and I do give interviews in the language. Nonetheless, English is by far my language of choice and it's a language in which I write. So as an author, it's the language in which I publish my books. Uh, and, 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 and it's not just because of that, it's also to make the point that English has a place as an instrument of Indian unity that this government should not and cannot afford to overlook. Let me ask one other question before we go over to, we're gonna take a few questions from the audience. So if you, wherever you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, you can leave questions in the chat function and, and we'll take a couple of those for, for Shashi. But one other theme I noticed throughout the, the, the 53 words was that a, a number of them you pick words where um, the English words have an Indian origin. So this right. is well known from Hobson Jobson. You mentioned thug already. The one I liked was Juggernaut, which I yes. never heard of having an Indian. Uh, you even mentioned Namaste. I mean, could you reflect for a minute in a sense uh, how you think India itself will change the English language as India continues to rise and its global influence um, expands over the, you know, the coming decades and centuries ahead? Interesting you should put it that way, James. In fact, uh, in the, in the Indian languages had far more of an impact on the English language in the past. That is, uh, when the British were ruling, a lot more, lang um, lot more Indian words um, directly went into the English language. So it's not, for example, loot. I have mischievously written that the British took the word, the, the, the Hindi word, loot, into their dictionaries as well as their habits. Um, but it also included some of the words that you've mentioned. And at the same time, it, it involved um, the British 
acquiring or creating a slang that uh, came out of their first-hand experience. So, for example, uh, a, a common English slang expression in the first half of the 19th century, in fact, most of the 19th century, uh, for, a, for a bit of a fuss and, and, and a to-do uh, was Dulali. It came from the town of Devlali, and, and presumably some soldier had found Devlali a very fancy town, and so uh, a big do must have taken place there, a banquet of some sort. And so the British, you'll find 19th century novels in Britain, set in Britain, where people talk about having a Dulali. Now, that's gone out of the English language, um, but loot has remained, Juggernaut has remained. Juggernaut even precedes British colonialism because it actually, uh, 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 you know, it, it has a kind of vaguely Germanic look. It looks like Juncker or something, you know, when Juggernaut or something like that, but it's not. It's actually from um, uh, the name of the deity, uh, uh, the Hindu deity Jagannath, who's carried in a devotional procession, and a, a, an English traveler, Sir John Mandeville, in the 14th century, described that festival um, with, a, with a grotesque error. He, he, he saw, apparently, somebody being trampled to death under the wheels of the chariot, and decided that it meant that uh, people were throwing themselves as a religious sacrifice. There is, in fact, no tradition of religious sacrifice of that nature in Hinduism. Uh, and being and 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 he saw the person to death and said that um, this must be because of the remorseless, relentless, all-consuming force of this of the chariot and, and called it a juggernaut. And that uh, that um, uh, became by the 18th century in English a synonym for an irresistible and destructive force that demands total devotion or unforgivable, uh, un unforgiving sacrifice. And it popped up in the novels of Charlotte Bronte and Charles Dickens and, and uh, Robert Louis Stevenson used it for Mr. Hyde in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, and, and of course, it's become metaphorical now as something remorseless, implacable, unstoppable, all of that, but also demanding blind devotion and absolute sacrifice. Um, I suppose its synonyms are words like steamroller and battering ram. Um, but uh, but you can use it more benignly. Who can stop the Federer juggernaut at Wimbledon? I saw a headline not too long ago or last year. Uh, or people talk about the Obama electoral juggernaut and so on. Um, but the fact is that um, poor old Lord Juggernaut was actually a very kindly uh, god. Uh, and millions of worshippers in Puri will tell you that Lord Juggernaut is a figure of reverence, not of fear. Now, I've sidestepped your question, will India have more of an influence? I'm not sure, because I think that what's happened with the globalization of the English language is also, in fact, uh, a greater willingness now to, um, to actually accept that there are multiple variants of it. So I think Indian English will be seen as something different from English English, rather than something uh, to be infused into English English, uh, rather like American, rather like Australian, and so on. I think you will find that Indian English will be, will be recognized as a distinctive form of English, rather than something that brings new words in very much. Nonetheless, I put it in namaste, because of the popularity of the namaste greeting during the coronavirus. And Satyagraha has an interesting story. Mahatma Gandhi coined it through an English language newspaper in South Africa. He conducted a public competition to find a word better than the word that English language journalists were using to describe his civil disobedience campaigns, which was passive resistance. He said, nothing passive about my resistance. If you want to fight for truth, you have to fight actively for it. So let's find another word. 
And it was the readers of an English language newspaper who coming up from these Sanskrit roots came up with Satyagraha. So you see that uh, it's not impossible that new such words can be, can be coined and, uh, and, and perhaps will be. But the English language has a wonderful quality of, of flexibility, absorptiveness and willingness to accommodate. So you may yet turn out to be right. Very good. Well, look, you're bang on time. So we've got 10 minutes for questions. Let's start with a, a fun one. And I want to add in my own here. So one of your words um, was, uh, you're not normally as a politician given to admitting weakness, but one of your words was lethologica, uh, the act of being at a loss for the right word. And I <laughs> wondered, you claim that this strikes you uh, from time to time, but it doesn't seem very likely. And on the same uh, vein, Rohita asks, being, uh, being such a master of words, have you ever been gobsmacked by a word in your life? So are you, are you truly lost for words ever? And have you ever been gobsmacked by a particular word? Well, I was gobsmacked as recently as yesterday when um, I was asked to address a webinar on political polarization in India. And somebody said, you know, please address the phenomenon of pasokification. And I said, what? Do you mean pacification? He said, no, pasokification. And it turned out to be a real word. It was coined by a Guardian correspondent, I think, about a decade ago. To refer, sorry, not even a decade ago, in about 2015, to refer yeah, to what happened... It, to what happened to the Greek political party PASOK, the Pan-Hellenic Socialist Movement, uh, which got squeezed from both the left and the right and went overnight in one election from being the largest party in the Greek parliament with 163 seats uh, to in the next election being the smallest party with 13 seats. And that's PASOKification because it lost its credibility as a socialist party and Syriza came up. And of course, it was already hit from the right because of its socialist policies. And so pasokification is what this person was interested in seeing uh, me discuss. Uh, I'm afraid in the context of my own party, the Congress Party, and I don't think it's happening to Congress. But it may have happened, for example, to the Scottish Labour Party. So it's not exactly uh, an unusual word. It's a word that will probably be uh, more and more used in political discourse. So that's one I was gobsmacked with. But... Um, Lethologica does happen to everyone. I mean, you, you have this awful feeling when you think of, of a word that you know well in way, and then suddenly while you're speaking, it, the word just doesn't come. And so, uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's a very common illness. I'm told, actually, that, um, that uh, the, the reason that the, um, the, the word is worth talking about is because the American Psychiatry Association says that nine out of ten people will suffer some form of lethologica sometime during their lives. And so uh, it would be odd if, if most of us who use words didn't sometimes struggle for a word. There we go. The, the, the larger the vocabulary, the, the greater the fall. A, a slightly more serious question here. So Rishi Kant asks, let me read out this question. There is a debate on the importance of English in India. Marginalized communities inspired by Dr. Ambedkar see uh, English as a route for upliftment whereas there's also a narrative of indigenous languages dying out with the number of speakers dwindling. How can one draw a middle line here? So this, uh, this builds a little bit on what you were talking about earlier about the role of English in Indian contemporary politics, but maybe you could say a little about that. Yeah, well, actually, yes, uh, I partly addressed it in that, but not fully, because Rishi, your questioner actually raises an important issue, which is that uh, Ambedkar, for example, deliberately dressed in Western suits and ties um, and spoke and wrote in English uh, because he found it a way of empowerment for himself and, and his people. The Those people in those days used to be called Dalit community. And, and he did it because um, uh, he said that English didn't carry the trappings 
of caste and discrimination and all the archaic um, uh, forms and, 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 and failings of traditional Indian languages. It was very similar to his rejection of Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi's uh, insistence on idealized, self-sufficient village republics. Because Ambedkar said these villages are dens of iniquity, they're sinks of discrimination and hostility. Uh, I will not want India to be reduced to a village or a collection of villages. I want urbanization. I want English. And indeed, uh, some of his uh, uh, sort of political descendants have now said, we want capitalism because capitalism empowers Dalits. We don't want handouts from the upper caste. So there's a whole movement saying that we should, we should take up English. There is in parallel a different movement that says, we need English because English is the language of globalization, that you cannot function in a, in a, in a, in a world economy today without having to deal with customers, consumers, and so on in English, not because it's their first language, it may be their second or their third language. But if you uh, uh, have English as a second or third language, it gives you something in common with a German customer or, 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 or a Swede or a Chinese uh, wh whom you want to do business with. So in this kind of world that's more knit together, it is rather necessary, one would suggest, to be able to, um, to, be able to uh, uh, have some, some command of English. And there's been a very interesting phenomena of, of phenomenon of, of, of parents from very poor families taking their children out of government schools, which are essentially almost free, and putting them in hopeless private schools only because those private schools offer instruction in the English medium. So uh, my answer to your questioner is that I think English is not just something that um, uh, you know English speakers like myself want to cling on to. It is a language of aspiration. It's a language of empowerment. It's a language of national unity. And it's a language that gives opportunities to people who currently feel oppressed within the confines and the ethos of their of their mother tongues or local languages. So, uh, I you know everyone knows I'm not a fan of British colonialism, uh, but I'm very glad that Indians latched onto the English language uh, and and made of it what it is today. And I, I, I as a proud Indian, want to see us holding on to the advantages that has given us. Very good. We got a couple more minutes, so let's do, do a couple more questions quickly. Uh, Gopa Roy asks, have you noticed more words or expressions being adopted into Indian English from American English overtaking British English? This is a, yes, that's a very good. You, but uh, is this true? It, it is true, James. Uh, you'll find Indians talking about apartment rather than flat and elevated. It's partly, of course, media, because when you come across these words in movies and books and music and, and now on the Internet, um, uh, you, you think of them as, as the right word to use. Uh, most, uh, not, I shouldn't say most, because that's a very unscientific way of putting it, but a surprisingly large number of Indians say schedule rather than schedule, because they hear schedule far more often uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in their workplaces. <laughs> and so, uh, but um, uh, we don't have autumn, so we haven't gotten to the autumn fall category of debate. Uh, but otherwise, um, yes, I, I would say a lot of American words are coming in like that and, uh, and, and, and stealing a march on English. Um, England has given us our archaism. So there's still people of a certain generation who'll tell you that some place you're looking for is a couple of furlongs down the road. And I don't think the English use furlong anymore. <laughs> <laughs> which is two eighths of a mile, but the fact is that uh, um, uh, the fact is that we we in India still have people using it. Um, but we don't, for example, have many Indians 
saying gotten, as the Americans do for have got. Uh, gotten is not completely absent. Once in a while, I hear Indians saying gotten. And the other interesting development, uh, somewhat dismaying, I think, because I'm a bit more of a purist when it comes to spelling, is that American spellings have now been, have found acceptance in, in Indian English. And um, I used to write a column for NDTV.com once and was horrified when they corrected my Indian English spellings, which are British derived, uh, through an American spell check. And I said, this is wrong. This is American. And they said, American is fine with us. So, you know, yes, it, it, it is a battle that may be in the process of being lost. One, we've got one minute to go, so I'm going to squeeze in two very quick questions. So Roshni Bangara asks, can we now have some war big words of appreciation for the audience watching today? And Priya asks, if you had a word for today or a word of the day, what would it be for today? So let's have a, let's have a few uh, Thororasaurus <laughs> specials to end um, in our final minute. Well, actually, uh, Penguin has been cleverly marketing, marketing the book by saying uh, to the audience and others, others like you listening in, uh, that, that um, uh, you know, you, you can put aside your hippopotamonstrous sesquipedaliophobia, which means a fear of long words. So with this book, you can indeed put aside your fear of long words. Um, I want to assure you, uh, using another word from, from Therurasaurus, that... Um, that there's a lot of hyperbole about when it comes to my excessive fondness for long words. Um, but you too can be an opsimath and learn a few new ones, even if you're of advanced age. Um, I think those would be three words from the book I've tossed into one sentence. If you really want a word of the day, it would have to be one of the words in my reply to Chetan Bhagat, I think, which, uh, <laughs> while we were talking, has crossed almost 32,000. <laughs> likes on Twitter. Uh, and of those, I, 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 I would certainly hope that um, that uh, uh, limpid perspicacity might actually be something that most writers would want to be capable of. James Lee is, and I commend his book to you, he's been very modest in playing foil to me and not talking about his own writing. But um, I can assure you that uh, limpid perspicacity comes through in James's writing a lot. That's very kind of you. All right. So Shashi Tharoor, a man never known to suffer, even if he claims he does, from uh, Lethologica, a lover of knowledge, which if you read the book, you'll find out is epistemophilia. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. This podcast is produced by Launchora in partnership with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to Jepper Bites wherever you're listening to this. Mm -hmm.